This is the Yanks Are Coming podcast. My name is Carter Krishnire. I'll be joined in a minute by Neil Blackman and Richard Farley from 442 to discuss all things NWSL following this opening weekend of the 2017 campaign. We're with Richard Farley, 442, um, talking NWSL like we promised on our show last week that we would do. Um, I wanted to ask Richard a little bit about Tucson, Kansas City to start, because I feel like, to me, maybe the most shocking thing that happened last year was Kansas City not making the playoffs. I mean, there was a lot kind of involved in and around that. But um, what did they do in the offseason? I mean, they were pretty active. Add Sid LaRue, add Amy Rodriguez. I think uh, the young the youngster Gibbons probably has a chance to to access the U.S. Women's National Team relatively soon. Um, I like the idea of her getting mentored positionally with Becky Sauerbrunn. There's a question here coming, and it's, I guess, that... <laughs> Don't worry about it, Neil. This is your show, man. You can talk however you want. <laughs> is this a team that, that um, you know, makes sort of... that looks a lot different and and is back to contending for a championship, or are they still a team that needs someone to tie the playmakers together? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think you framed it really well. Even going back to the beginning of your question, where you noted that it was a surprise that the two-time defending champions fell off so much. Because I think when you're kind of in the NWSL bubble and you see the news coming in and out, it wasn't really a surprise there. But the problem with that bubble is it's so small. And then most of the people that do follow this league tangentially don't know that Amy Rodriguez got pregnant for the second time. Uh, Lauren Holiday retired. And without that foundation, then all of a sudden FC Kansas City looked like a much different team. And so for much of last year, they were still trying to play the same way that they did during the first three years, three highly successful years, but they didn't have the talent. So this year, Vladko Adonofsky has switched away from a 4-2-3-1 formation that that was really built around Lauren Holiday being the number 10. And what we saw this weekend was they went with a 4-3-3 formation that really didn't have a playmaker and was really relying on Amy Rodriguez to drop back into that number 10 role and really connect with the Katie Bowens of the world. Katie Bowen being a, a New England. New Zealand international who kind of played a, an eight role, but was really uh, trying to ping like these two level passes up to Amy Rodriguez to get through the defense. Now, on one hand, I kind of feel sheepish about looking too much into FC Kansas City because they were going at home, going up against a team that was not only the worst team in the league last year, but was like 24 goals worse on goal difference than everybody else last year, the Boston Breakers. So I, I don't want to read too much into what we saw, but what we did see was Radko Andonovsky abandoning the idea that they could play the same way that they played when Lauren Holiday was active. They didn't have a number 10. They were going much more direct. They were going with a different formation. And in that sense, I think that Kansas City fans have reason to be optimistic that the one thing they were missing last year, goals, could actually come around this year. Uh, now, of course, there's... Uh, probable serious injury to Amy Rodriguez or potentially serious injury. I'm not sure quite sure what it is. Yeah. yeah. They announced it today. It's a torn, it's a torn left ACL and she's out for the season. Oh, okay. Well, uh, it is a serious injury. I knew it was a knee injury and, uh, we saw her leave shortly after she scored. Uh, well, I guess that, um, <laughs> takes away my question, which I was, I was going to, uh, talk about coping without her. They learned, to, they tried to cope without, uh, A-Rod last season, they also had uh, Lauren Holiday, obviously, had retired. 
and everybody has followed her, her plight. Now um, they get A-Rod back. She gets a goal. They win. Very impressive on uh, opening day of the season or opening weekend. They played on Sunday. Uh, but, Richard, now uh, you're giving me the news that I, I wasn't aware of, that she is out for the season, that that injury is as serious as it looked. So how does FC Kansas City cope? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's one that um, you know will really define their season. So if we go back to last year when they were still playing that that four two three one, which you know, kind of in your player selection isn't that different than a four three three. It's just how you want your players to play. So they had Shea Groom up top, who is just this annoying workhorse. Think of her if you have MLS followers on this show. Think of her as kind of like a Dom Dwyer type, except for she isn't quite producing as many goals as Dom Dwyer. And then on the left side on the wing, they had Erica Timrak, a University of Florida product that I know Neil is very familiar with. And then on the right side they had Heather O'Reilly well how they've changed that this year the three attackers they had this weekend was Amy Rodriguez who we've already talked about on the left a returning Sydney LaRue and on the right Shea Groom was going out there so what they have now is a choice as to whether to move Sydney LaRue up to the number nine position or to move Shea Groom up to the number nine position and it's a drastically different choice Shea Groom is a workhorse maybe as good at pressing as any forward in the league, but she is not actually that good at scoring goals or really creating goals or dropping back in the midfield and making the connections that A-Rod did. Now, Sydney LaRue isn't really that good in a lot of those either. She's not somebody that you associate with having the skill to drop back, hold up the ball, find the midfielder that's coming into play, and then peel off and make a run. She's not that player. But what she is is a player that has the pure physicality when she's fully fit to score goals. So Vlad Kotinovsky has a choice to make there. And when you imagine it, it really comes down to how you want to play defensively. City LaRue is not going to press the hell out of central defenders. If she does, that'd be a great thing to add to her career. Shea Groom will. Shea Groom may not score the goal, same goals that Sydney LaRue does, but she's going to do all the little things that maybe allow you to build an attack around her that works. So that'll be very interesting to see what Vlad Kladinowski does. The one thing he doesn't have that is absolutely not going to be replaced, or the not the intangibles, but kind of the, the skills that Amy Rodriguez has. When I was talking about somebody dropping back into that hole um, in front of the defense and making the connections that they need now, since they're not playing at number 10, well, LaRue or Groom are not going to do that the way A-Rod does. When you talk about somebody peeling off after playing that first ball and then challenging the central defenders with their runs, nobody makes runs like Amy Rodriguez. And even though we don't associate her with creativity and coming up with great through balls or even just amazing distribution, Amy Rodriguez is still much better at those things than Sidney LaRue or Shea Groom. And since Maddie Laddish is out right now, who Maddie Laddish is probably the person that uh, Vlad Kladnowski, as far as midfielders are concerned, would want on the ball most if she were as healthy. The loss of A-Rod really, really stings. And with Heather O'Reilly unlikely to return, well, she can't return before the end of the English season, and nobody is sure if she's coming back even then. Uh, that's another skill player that Vlad Kladnowski does not have access to right now. Uh, just finishing up on uh, on Kansas City, for, for, unless Neil has uh, more on KC, uh, A-Rod, one of the things that I think you and I have liked about for her for years, Richard, and you and I have talked about it and have had to defend her against a lot of critics uh, at the national team level, is the way she does the things off the ball, the way she drops back, drifts back into midfield, she links up, the way she runs the channels. She doesn't score a whole lot of goals at the um, national team level compared to other strikers the U.S. have had, but she does all these little things. 
with Kansas City, she's been a primary goal scorer. In fact, a much more successful goal scorer in NWSL than even Alex Morgan has been. Uh, and has been able to do all these little things. Uh, Kansas City, I got the impression in the offseason, was building the team and the formation in the 4-3-3 around having her back in the number nine position. So if you put LaRue in that role, aren't you essentially needing to blow it up? Maybe you have to change formations or you have to uh, think about making an acquisition at this point. Yeah, or you have to go even more direct than they were already going. Like I talked about... Katie Bowen playing like those second level balls from in front of the midfield line of the opposition to in front of the to pass that line and in front of the forwards. Now they're probably going to have to go like they did a couple times this weekend where Boston, where I guess Boston, they kind of recognized the central defense was shaky and the right side of the Boston defense was shaky and they played some long balls directly into the defense and challenged them to make the right plays. Well, now maybe they have to do that more because they have nobody that can drop into those spaces. Or maybe Erica Timrak, who can operate in those spaces, but she didn't even play this weekend. She was on the bench. Maybe she has to come in because they need somebody that can operate in that space until head Heather O'Reilly and Maddie Lattice are available. Either way, like you were talking about, this team seemed to be structured around the idea that A-Rod was going to be back to not only challenge the central defenders, but then to fill that hole in at the top of midfield where you could play a ball directly to her and then she could find somebody else and peel off and all of a sudden you've transitioned. And they just don't have that right now. And I think the comparison you made to Alex Morgan is really valuable for people to know because Alex Morgan hasn't had the same success in the NWSL that she has had internationally. And like you said, Amy Rodriguez has had more success in the NWSL than she has had internationally. And that says a lot about what this league is about. In this league, you're not going to have any trouble finding a team that has athletes that can at least keep up with the Alex Morgans and Sidney LaRue's of the world. But you are going to have trouble finding central defenders that have kind of that Becky Sauerbrunn instinct to know where the runs are going and where you have to be. And I think that's why Amy Rodriguez has been much better at the NWSL level than Alex Morgan has been. And potentially why Alex Morgan, when you see her putting up these great numbers when the U.S. has um, is going up against... I don't want to say overmatched opponents, but they kind of are. The U.S. overmatches 95% of the opponents they play. When Alex Morgan is going up against defenders from, say, Russia, those defenders are nowhere near the same level physically as the defenders that she sees in the NWSL. Yeah, agreed. Uh, uh, Neil, you, you uh, have something? No, I mean, this is a, I think it's a really, this is, this is a lot of uh, really good stuff. The thing I would, I would think is that they would try to to replicate at least the work rate of Rodriguez with Groom. And then I, I just don't think you can move LaRue, mainly for the reasons that Richard said, that you want her, you want her fit and downhill. Um, she scored a goal against Brazil in Orlando like five or six years ago that I think I've linked like four or five times because it demonstrates yeah. exactly, exactly <laughs> I, I'm so familiar with that goal because of you, Neil, honestly, but continue. Right, I mean, but that's what Sydney LaRue does well, right? Uh, it, it's that if you can get her downhill or even in a channel um, running towards a goal and you're not going to get her dropping back into space and making the sorts of plays that, that Amy Rodriguez makes – you lose too much of what she does well, I think. So I think you have to try to replicate it with Groom and then find an answer uh, somewhere else, whether it's an acquisition or whether it's saying, hey, Eric Timrak, I know you've been doing 
things professionally differently for three years, but I want you to play the role you played in college. Um, you know, but that's a big ask. Um, that also probably requires a diamond. Um, so I think, I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I think we, we may have beat this to death. And I could ask about another team that, that really fascinates me, uh, which, which Richard is a little closer to, which would be Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe another team that might not have, you know, maybe if you're not in the bubble, maybe they shouldn't have missed the playoffs. And now they're dealing with Tim Little being not there. Um, there's also someone named Hope Solo who's, who's not around. Uh, possibly, I think maybe the best back four. Maybe I'm way off. Uh, maybe I just like Carson Pickett way too much. Um, but what's the deal in that midfield? Because it seems to me that it's just just it's just uh, just fish luck, and, and we'll see. Yeah, um, it was both incredibly intriguing this weekend, and then ultimately somewhat disappointing this weekend. So I kind of went into this off season thinking that. Laura Harvey would stay with the basic 4-3-3 formation that she has been working with in each year of this league. And that 4-3-3 has basically been, since the second year of the league, uh, the highest midfielder is Tim Little, the number eight, Jessica Fishlock, and then the number six is Keelan Winters. Keelan Winters retired. Tim Little went back to Arsenal. And Jessica Fishlock, she's as good as any midfielder in the league, but you still have to fulfill two roles. So they went out and got Christine Nairn from Washington, who is somebody that is very technical on the ball. And then they had somebody, a Japanese international midfielder named Rumi Atsugi, who I thought they were going to plug in as a six. Well, Atsugi didn't start this weekend. Nairn started in the deepest role. I think the vision there was to try to make her a deep-lying distributor. And then they started kind of this triangle in front of her. Uh, as a number nine, they started a natural midfielder named Lindsay Elston, who has jumped around from Houston to France and to Seattle in her last three years. And then they pulled their ostensible number nine, who also plays on the wings sometimes, Bev Yanez, into a high midfield role. And then they also had Jessica Fishlock there. So those three players kind of rotated at certain times in a triangle. And I need to go back and watch the game, but I think they were kind of feeding on Fishlock. Because sometimes you would see Fishlock as the highest player in that triangle, which would make her essentially a nine, and she was the one that was pressing. And then sometimes you would see Fishlock as a, the deepest player, and it would end up being kind of like a double pivot with her along Christine, side Christine Nairn. To me, that's really fascinating, because when you have something like Jessica Fishlock, who covers more ground and has as much of an effect over that ground as anybody in the league, it's, it makes sense to me to have a midfield that's going to feed off her. At the same time, the idea of Christine Nairn playing a number six role when she's not really a ball winner, I think to me, along with the fact that I think Lindsay Elson was a little bit overhead or maybe just had a bad game, and then Bev Yanez isn't a high work rate midfielder, it just made that midfield transparent whenever Jessica Fishlock wasn't doing something remarkable. So what that then did, it then got to the back line that you're talking about, Neil. Lauren Barnes is back there. She's the a reigning defensive player of the year, but her side of the defense, along with Carson Pickett at left back, was really exploited by Sam Kerr's movement. Now, I don't want to make it seem like that's a remarkable thing, because Sam Kerr is kind of an underappreciated jewel of world soccer. She's an amazing Australian attacker. She has the potential to be a world player of the year one day, but that left side of defense, without Keelan Winters to protect it, really, really looked exposed. So, I think Seattle got a little bit lucky this weekend. Haley Kottmeyer, their goalkeeper, 
ended up winning player of the week for her performance, which of course is kind of a backhanded compliment for your team, right? You never want your goalkeeper to have player of the week. But that's where Seattle is right now. They need to get their defense playing better. They have a even they have a rookie uh, starting right next to um, Lauren Barnes in Kristen McNabb and she she was actually okay except you couldn't really tell because they weren't really attacking her side that much but if the defense is porous and the midfield isn't going to stop teams from getting to them that's a major problem I, I guess I'll close by saying this for the last three years Kim Little because of her scoring she's the highest scoring player in NWSL history even though she hasn't played all four years in the league she got the spotlight Jessica Fishlock got some appreciation too Keila Winters was basically overlooked we knew those three players were awesome I don't think we knew how awesome those three players were because personally you know watching them and seeing the rest of the league I I always almost voted for Keelan Winters on one of the two all-league teams. And I think those three players, you could argue, over the last three years in the league, have been the three most productive midfielders in the league. If you lose two of those, it is kind of basically back to the drawing board. Richard, a subject that's even closer to home for you, uh, the Portland Thorns. Uh, obviously, you, I'm sure you saw uh, a lot of things to like from their perspective in the 2-0 victory over Orlando, which was the debut game on Lifetime. And I want to get to uh, the TV deals and go 90 a little bit later with you. But uh, Ali Long and Christine Sinclair, the, the, the combination that those two have, uh, have created, particularly when they have sp- time and space on the ball, uh, and uh, they've over, uh, outnumbered or overmatched the opposing midfield, is impressive. Um, and we've seen this for a couple seasons now, and they had Alex Morgan a few years ago as part of kind of uh, that triumvirate. Do you, did you pick up on any potential way to defend uh, Portland uh, from what you saw with Orlando? Because uh, Orlando was not able to slow them down, particularly in the second half, and got opened up. Um, uh, what is that, how does that vote for the rest of NWSL? I, I hate to be like this, Kartik, because it sounds like a cop-out. But I really didn't. Um, you know, I think the Thorns are going to go as far this year as the Thorns want to go. And it's because when you have a player like Christine Sinclair, there's not one way you can shut her down because she can be a number nine, she can be a number yeah. ten, she, yeah. can go out, she can go out wide and attack your weakest players. But then you complement her with Tobin Keith, who didn't even play this weekend because of back problems. You have a versatile player like Ali Long, who there's a lot of debate about, but you can't, you can't ignore the fact that she's capable of doing things like she did on Saturday. And her teammates now, after playing with her for five years, Heath and Sinclair have played with Ali Long for the Thorns for five years at this point. This is their fifth year. They know when she, exactly she's going to play that ball, and Christine Sinclair knows when to get past the line for it. They know this kind of thing. We have an Amandine Henri in midfield who is one of the best central midfielders in the world. Those kind of players make the other good talents around them even better. Nadia Nadim, who is, plays the right wing for this team, is an actual number, uh, a natural number nine. But the fact that Christine Sinclair is so versatile allows Nadia Nadine to go, and when they need to play direct, go right up against the defender and kick it straight to her. We saw this last year, late in the season, how valuable an option that was. Um, we see all kinds of different places in world football or in world soccer where having a wide target person is really valuable when they can be matched up against fullbacks. I haven't even mentioned Lindsay Horan yet. Just to take, just to take kind of like a broader view of this, last year... Mark Parsons was able to 
really get a defense together that was elite. They had the best defense in the league. But he was never able to have all of his pieces together where he could get really intricate with his attack. And at the end of the season, when you talk to him, he would say, this team is going to be so much better next year because the baseline for our attacking performance is just so much higher now. And we're, we're going to see that over the course of this year. I don't think Portland played particularly awesome this weekend. I don't think they played bad by any stretch of the imagination either. But when they can go direct to Christine Sinclair and she can force a handball, just like that. Right. Or when they when Allie Long can charge through the midfield and discard players and play that through ball for Christine Sinclair, just like that. This is just an incredibly scary team. And like I said a couple minutes ago, they're going to go as far as they want to go. I, I will say this. They match up terribly against North Carolina, absolutely terribly, because in central defense, they have two 5'8 runners. They don't have somebody that can compete in the air with Justin McDonald and Lynn Williams. So if they meet Carolina in the playoffs again this year, just like they met met the Western New York Flash last year, I think Mark Parsons, uh, that's Mark Parsons' worst-case scenario, I think. Richard, just to push back a little bit against that argument, um, we've looked at Portland on paper the last few seasons and felt the same way before the season. Now, of course, last year was disrupted by injuries and and international call-ups, right, and the Olympics and all of that. Uh, But haven't we uh, fallen in love with this Thorns team on paper and all the possibilities, particularly with the versatility of Long and Sinclair in previous years, and then at the end of the season said, well, uh, there was a team like Western New York that just matched up really well with them and, and beat them. Yeah, I, or that's kind of been the Thorns' best-case scenario, to be honest with you. They didn't win the title last year like they did the first year, but it was clearly their best team last year. The first year, they made it into the playoffs as the number three seed and then had very two close wins in the playoffs and won the title. But last year's team was far better than their first year's team. They've always been better on paper than they have been in real life. And I think you could even say that last year to a certain extent. I think last year their defense was better on paper than you would say the actual talent was. Going into the year, I don't think anybody thought that Emily Menges was going to be a Defensive Player of the Year candidate or Michael Bentos was going to, again, be one of the better goalkeepers in the league. So they overperformed there, but the attack still wasn't putting up these three- and four-goal performances. So I agree with you, Kartik, but I think that even if the Thorns do not meet the level that their talent implies, if they do not meet the level that Lindsey Perrin... Amandine Henri, Tobin Heath, Christine Sinclair, Ali Long, if they don't meet the level that those players uh, imply, they could still have the second-best attack in the league along with the best defense. That's how crazy talented this team is. Last question about Portland, and I'll let uh, Neil get some questions in because I know I'm monopolizing the conversation here. Uh, Mark Parsons, we all have a lot of respect for him, but Portland is a – more sophisticated soccer town than I think any other one in the country. And I think I, I, I don't want people uh, tweeting and getting angry about that. But I think, I think we can all pretty much agree on that. How much pressure is he under now? Because I think last season people were very disappointed. They were underwhelmed by how uh, the Thorns lost in the, in, in the postseason. Uh, does he have to win the title this season? Yeah, I mean... I do agree with you to a certain extent, the premise of the question, because I do think that people kind of bottom-lined it and said, you ultimately lost a home game in the playoffs. And not only that, Mark Parsons is now 0-3 for 3 in the playoffs. Yeah. So I think there's yeah, some legitimate questions. Obviously, previous to that. Uh, yeah, he, he, uh, well, Seattle. Both years, yeah, yeah. Was Washington ended up playing Seattle and losing. And 
obviously, I don't think people should hold it against him that his limited Washington team couldn't beat the best team in the league those years on the road, too. But at the same time, it's accumulated, right? He did have the best team in the league last year, and he lost at home. To me, I, I talked to Mark a lot about this in January when I met him at the draft. I've watched that semifinal game so many times. I think if you were to give like team kind of ratings on you know the 1 to 10 scale that we always see, the Thorns played a 7 that game, and the Flash played a 10. Like, I just think the Thorns were fine that game. They just weren't perfect. But I don't think all the fan base thinks that way. I don't think there's any pressure on Mark, per se. But I do think if the same thing happened this year as last year, that if they finished in first place and they lost at home, I think that it, people would be very quick to say, okay, that's the last time you get to do that before we get mad. Mark Parsons has a lot of faith in this fan base because he is a honest broker, and people see him as different than the more boisterous Paul Riley who was here before. Yeah, he's very he's very loyal to his players, and people immediately saw a difference too in just the way that the team worked for him last year, and that contrast I think buys him a lot of equity with the fan base because when you see the players actually respond to a different voice in such a starkly different way, that's something that's very, very difficult to forget based on one playoff game. Um, Well, I said I was going to turn it over to Neil. I have one last question, I promise, uh, Neil, and then it's all yours. Uh, It's all good, Cardiff. Yeah, Mark Parsons' former team, Washington, uh, been real concerned about them all offseason, and obviously Jim Gabara uh, has a history there. Uh, with, with that organization, was the coach before Mark Parsons and then um, uh, replaced him as well when he left to go to Portland. I, I'm looking at a squad, uh, and now uh, Joanna Loman has gotten injured. Uh, so it's, yeah. got, it's gotten even worse for them, and I think she's going to be out for a while also. I think it, that, that, yeah, uh, another, another season injury. injury oh, she has okay. torn ACL. That's the theme of the weekend. No, another ACL. Okay, I, as again, I saw it was a knee injury. I, I saw the game the other day, and I didn't follow up on yeah. Uh, the severity of the injury. So I'm looking at a squad that, to me, um, I don't think can even compete in this league. And, and obviously, Gabara is ab- a- as experienced as any other coach in professional women's soccer in this country and has had a lot of success. But um, how much should we be concerned about the Washington Spirit maybe being potentially the worst team we've seen in NWSL in these five seasons? I think people should be concerned. I don't share that concern, but I, I don't disagree with it either. Now, here's here's my logic behind this. Washington wasn't a prolific attacking team last year. They did a lot of their work based on defense and a productive midfield. In defense, they still have a lot of talent. Stephanie LeBay had a great uh, performance this weekend in goal. The defense didn't actually perform that well, but uh, Shalina Zadorsky, a Canadian international, Whitney Church... Casey Coleman, who they brought in from Boston. Um, when she's healthy again, Caprice Nadasco, who's their left back that hurt her knee in last year's final. Uh, Estelle Johnson is a veteran of this league. Alyssa Kleiner is somebody who, in last year's final, performed very well. They have pieces there to be an above-average defense. And in front of them, they have enough players uh, in people like Chris, Christy Muez. Um, of course, uh, Joanna, Joanna Lohman is injured now. But they have uh, Tori Huster, who is their defensive midfielder, who is an above-average player. They have enough there to be... I would say better than most teams in the league in, in those two parts of the field. But as we saw this weekend, they're just terrible going forward. I mean, it was just so bad. 
they were just kicking the ball to open spaces in transition, and they just had nobody to go and claim it. Maybe that'll change. Maybe they make a move. Maybe the plans get better. Maybe maybe it was going up against a North Carolina team that is as talented as anybody in the league, short of Portland, and, and definitely as ferocious in the way that they play as anybody in the league. Their press is their pressing is unbelievable. Well, well that was that was that was the point I wanted to get to about this game was that I felt like what happened uh, in this match was that you had Paul Riley uh, pressing, having his attacking players press uh, that midfield, and they were just hoofing the ball and getting rid of the ball to uh, yeah. to beat that press and returning the ball to Western New York. Um, to, sorry, to North Carolina. <laughs> I'm thinking it's Western New York. Yeah, it's the same, same, yeah. Um, to, uh, to North Carolina. And it just, the pressure built up and built up and built up. And I, I, my, my fear for Washington is that that's going to happen all season. We're going to look at, and we see teams in world football and in men's football that lose games 1-0 and 1-0 and 1-0. And we think, oh, this team is a hard luck team. But at the end of the season, they get relegated. And that's the way I, I was feeling about Washington watching this game the other night. Like I said, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I, I disagree at this point, but I think your logic is sound. And, I mean, when we're talking about North Carolina's pressing, North Carolina's pressing gives teams like the Thorns problem. I mean, that's part of the reason that they're such a bad matchup for the Thorns. But at the same time, Kartik, and this goes kind of goes to the point that Neil was making about Kansas City. We've, we've seen this before a little bit, these teams that they have nothing on paper except for their back five or their back eight. Okay, great. But the best that that's going to get you is a fifth or sixth place finish. This was... This is a team that finished second in the league last year. I don't yeah. think anybody expected them to finish second this year. But if they don't have an attack, and let's say my optimism about their defense isn't warranted. I mean, right now, all their fullbacks are basically hurt. So what you were alluding to with their pressing, they had nobody to play the ball to and actually make good decisions wide. So they had to play just what looked like desperation soccer. So if a more pessimistic view of their back line and their midfield ends up being true, then to me you have a team that's as bad as Boston. And and there's also the possibility that Boston is not as bad as I think they are too. So um, I don't think they're going to be as bad as last year's Breakers. I mean, last year's Breakers had a negative 33 goal difference or negative 34 <laughs> goal difference in 20 games. But I think you could see a team that if Boston is better than I think they are and Washington is worse, you could see a team that finishes maybe four points back of the pack, which you know no team should ever... You should never be able to say that about a team one week into the season. Yeah. So if last year's breakers were were the nine and seventy three Philadelphia seventy sixers, yeah. Then, <laughs> then what's what, what's the like? I, I don't want to. It's not all one player. There's other things that have gone on. But how much of an impact does Rose Lavelle make? I mean, is this is this? Hey, they won three games out of twenty to now. You know, maybe they'll win six. So, let me ask you a question, Neil. Who was not only the better player coming out of college, but the better player and, like, the better talent their first season in the league? Rose Lavelle or Crystal Dunn? Mm. The better player in college. That Wisconsin team was so bad, though, Richard. I think it was Rose Lavelle just because that Wisconsin team was bad. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't, I don't blame you for saying. I don't blame you for saying that. Crystal Dunn didn't score a goal her rookie season, but she was on a good wow. North Carolina team, so I think it's it's kind no, of no. I mean, this is, this is a really fair. It's a good it's question. It's an incredibly fair point, and so I think we, I think that there's definitely some some folks, myself included, that saw her play at the end of her career at Wisconsin, and then saw 
what happened at the She Believes Cup in flashes and said, oh, well, you know, it's going to be a walk in the park to play um, <laughs> yeah. her rookie year, yeah. and it's not because she's – yeah, if that yeah, Wisconsin team was bad, this was this this team that she's joining is is maybe worse. Well, I, I, I think right, but as we saw this weekend, when she got on the ball, she was obviously electric. But there was one notable point this weekend where she gets the ball on the right side, does this kind of umbrella arc all the way to the left of the box, and ends up putting this really sharp angle shot on goal. Showed all of her talent right there, and it came to an expected goal shot that was probably point oh five. Just. Kansas City has a great defense, but they just didn't even challenge her. They just let her dribble into a place where she couldn't do anything. And so, right. for me, that's where the talent around her comes in. She doesn't have players that, that are going to be able to make those runs, at least not right now until they get to know each other. And secondly, they have a coach that hasn't really shown that he's up to the NWSL's uh, standard at this point. The NWSL has a series of amazing coaches, so I don't want to make it seem like Matt Beard is some kind of deficient just because he's not Black Goandonoski. But I like to make the comparison between him and Christy Holly and Sky Blue. They're both in their second year as coaches, and Christy Holly has completely redefined the culture around Sky Blue. There's an optimism there. They made a significant progress on the field. We saw what they could do this weekend when they went to Seattle, and to me, outplayed Seattle even though they got one point. Now, you contrast that with Boston, there's hope but not optimism there. There are questions about some of the draft picks they made. There are questions about how he deployed his team this weekend, including um, putting Rose Lavelle in a wide role as opposed to being in the middle. And the result really, they lost 2 nothing, but they could have easily lost 4 nothing. I mean, I think if you guys saw the game, Amy Rodriguez had like a one-on-one with the goalkeeper at six right. yards and put it right into her chest. Uh, yeah. And Pity LaRue hit the post two more times in that game. So the thing with Boston is basically... They finished in 10th place last year, but they were so far behind the pack. Like I said, I think they had a negative 34 goal difference last year, and the next worst in the league is negative was negative 9 with Orlando. And we know Orlando tanked at the end of last year. Even if Rosa Bell comes in and provides 6 goals and 8 assists, which would be one of the best rookie seasons ever, because the rookie of the year last year, Raquel Rodriguez, had 1 goal and 1 assist coming out of Penn State as a national championship winner. Even if Rosa Bell is a 6 goal, 8 assist player, that doesn't even get them to Orlando's mark last year. They have so much work to do that Rose Lavelle could be a second-team all-league player, at that, which would be an unprecedented level for a rookie in this league, and they would still be far behind the pack. The, let me um, ask you, Richard, and let, you'll jump in. I'm sorry. You keep, you keep saying things that I, okay. I uh, make me want to uh, engage a little more in this conversation. So you, you talked about Matt Beard, right? And um, the jury very much is out on him as an N- NWSL coach. No question about it. But um, how much do you think his success, and we've ha- we have this conversation about MLS all the time, about coaches that have coached abroad coming over. Uh, Beard, for me, was uh, one of the best coaches in, in the WSL before he came over here uh, with Chelsea and, and with Liverpool. Uh, how much do you think uh, last season for Boston, which was a disaster, and then this season, if they don't improve dramatically, impacts the willingness of, of teams in the United States to go out and hire managers from abroad? Oh, that's an interesting question. I'm I'm not sure it would impact it that much because I don't know how bad Matt Beard would have to be to cancel out the positive impression that Laura Harvey has made. Um, Laura Harvey coming over from Arsenal has just been such a a revelation for Seattle. She's somebody that the Predmores, the owners of that team, have been able to just hand the keys over and she's been able to put not only consistently 
um, good team in terms of results, but a team that the community actually likes to go out and see. So, and playing a style that people like to see too. So, I think there would have to be three or four Matt Beards in order to cancel that out. And there, are, you know, there are other examples of good coaches like Mark Parsons comes from Chelsea Ladies. Yeah. So, um, so I think people are no, still going to. I think the comparison to... with Beard is is, is instructive because he quit a job at Liverpool to come to the NWSL and tanked in year one. So you hear the conversation. That's why specifically he triggered that for me. Yeah, I I completely agree with you. And I I had this conversation with somebody the other day where I was trying to evaluate whether we needed to reassess that Liverpool team's talent level. Because thanks a lot to Jen Chang, who was their uh, sports (laughs) information director there, who really pushed the women's team. They went out and got so many players. I think the one that over here would remember most is Whitney Engen going over there and winning a title with them. That They really took the league by storm, and I think a lot of people gave Matt Beard credit because kind of on paper, they made a lot of changes, but they weren't like world-beater names like Whitney Ang is a good example. She was never more than the third best defender for the U.S., so it's not like they were going out and getting Becky Sauerbrunn. But looking back on it, one, Arsenal was at a low point in the league at that time because Kim Little had left on the heels of Laura Harvey leaving. Uh, Two, Chelsea and Manchester City hadn't come into their big spending own yet. And, And then three... Maybe we, just as a culture, undervalued these players, that the Amanda DaCostas of the world. So, right. Um, Even I Lucy Bronze that, on that team, we, have, we underestimated at the time. Yeah, so I think that we need to keep our mind open to this because we have seen coaches come over immediately and with their first job not only have success, but entire culture changes. Mark Parsons has done it twice. Now, that Matt Beard hasn't done that, it tells us that he's not up to Laura Harvey or Mark Parsons' level. You can still be a successful coach in this league and not be up to that level, but his team was so far behind the pack last year that the only thing that I can really go on is the fact that they did improve a little bit by the end of the season. I think I'm also kind of informed by... You know, the coach of Arsenal ladies now, um, replacing the person who replaced Laura Harvey initially, is a person named Pedro Loza. And they've had a lot of success since he took over, but he was just an assistant in the NWSL. He was an assistant with Western New York. So, and Mark Parsons was an assistant before he took over, or he was with, with the, this, uh, the spirit before he took over there. So I kind of wonder if even the assistant ranks of the NWSL have talents that we're overlooking just because we're not familiar with the assistants in this league. And that then informs how, you know, the obstacles that Matt Beard is going up against jumping into this world of this incredible coaches in the NWSL. Yeah. It, so let's let's build on the the distinction between sort of hope without real, you know, hope and optimism. Maybe are two different things. Let's let's build on the if Boston has hope. Does Chicago or should Chicago have optimism? Given that, I mean, you talked about the other semifinal um, from last year's playoffs. Really, you know, what a what a tremendous pair of semifinals. Chicago arguably deserved to win. Didn't. Um, I talked to Kristen Press at the She Believes Cup, the one game that I was able to make it to. She said that she thought they were flying under the radar a little bit, which is a weird statement from her, just because she's usually sort of deflective about being not. <laughs> She'll be optimistic, but she's not really someone who's like, hey, we're not getting respect. You know, that's not really what she's about. So I was kind of taken aback by it. Like, she thinks they have a very good team. Um, I thought they were better than Houston and lost. 
for large swaths of that game. Uh, for at least the first hour, I completely agree with you. Um, what are they a team that that could get back into the playoffs? Oh yeah, I think that playoffs is the bare minimum expectation. I think that. You know, when you see the predictions from the people that follow this league regularly, there are three teams that people are writing in. Portland, North Carolina, Chicago. And in a poll of of NWSL media members done before the season, Chicago got more first-place folks than Portland. Um, Now, I didn't participate in that poll because I don't give predictions unless I'm asked to go on record by somebody that's going to pay me money for it. But since I know you guys and I love you, I will say that I would have voted for Portland 1 and Chicago 2. My big thing with Chicago is this. Last year, they scored 24 goals in 20 games. They allowed only 18, so they were a good team. And you saw in that um, the game in the playoffs that you alluded to where they went to Washington, a team that had competed for the NWSL Shield all year, and they played a very tight game that they were ahead of, or at least they were controlling a lot of the time. But the problem with playing a low-scoring game is that things can happen to you. Right, the less, the fewer goals you score, the fewer goals you allow, the more you're letting set pieces, penalty kicks, random goals, bad calls, red cards affect you. So coming into the season, I said if Chicago can add six goals, they'll be the best team in this league. But they didn't add any players that would that would right. tell you they're going to do that. So I want to pose this question to you guys because this is one of the most interesting tactical things I saw this weekend in addition to what Seattle did and Kansas City did. They have one player, Kristen Press, who is an elite club-level goal scorer. And in fact, people haven't noticed this, but her goals per game rate is actually higher than Alex Morgan's now for the national team. So oh. you have her. You have her as, an, as you know somebody is going to be an MVP candidate. But she's also maybe your most creative player. So what do you do with her? Now, you can leave her as a number nine. And you're going to rely on her for your goal scoring. They also have Sofia Huerta, who scored six goals last year, I believe. Or she's your most creative player. Maybe you can move her back and have her creating for other people and hope that those goals can translate into attacking midfield. Here's the rub, though. They have a number 10 in Vanessa DiBernardo, who was an all-league player last year, who would then have to move back to being a number 8. So what do you do? Do you roll the dice that the... As Rory Game started this weekend, two forwards you you start ahead of a midfield diamond that's with press at the tip are going to add goals to your team, or do you keep press up top and then change the personnel behind her, hoping that you get more goals from your wide attackers, or you, or Vanessa DiBernardo turns into a goal scorer in addition to a distributor? What what would you guys do? Because I think philosophically, that's where you're going to feel that Chicago is good or bad. You're going to feel like Rory Games is making the right choice to get more than 24 goals this year, or that he's shot himself in the foot by moving press farther from goal. So, so Carney's probably going to faint when I when I answer this question by saying that <laughs> that I would move I would move press farther away from goal and try it that way because um, Carney knows that that I preach the. Kristen Press is a number nine. Yes. Uh, repeat, repeat on a bench. Like write it on the chalkboard. Twenty-five. Right. Nine. And Neil knows that I that uh, I I'm going to say move her further away from goal and player as a number ten. So I'll let you give the argument because <laughs> I thought you and I were going to go at it on this and we're in the same place. So continue. <laughs> she. Okay, Kristen Press is, and this is the national team dilemma too with her. I think, and I'm kind of interested to hear. Richard's feedback on this a little bit. She's so good at certain things that you're not supposed to be good at when you're a number nine. 
Uh-huh. That coaches, I think, are tempted to do different things with her tactically. But with Chicago, you have to. And if she can do some of those things, if she can play farther from the goal, if she can put in a through ball, if she can pump in a cross, um, you know, the types of things that we've seen her do with the national team, and sometimes you're like, well, I didn't know she could necessarily do that if you're a casual fan. Um, and you're like, well, yeah, she can. She's technically skilled enough to do those things. Um, I, I just think that they have to because I don't know. I think that it's probably better to do it that way than what your alternative options are. That sounds pretty simple, um, and you can always switch back if it doesn't work. But I think Richard's right. I mean, you can't – soccer things happen, and you can't just grind through an entire season trying to win games one nothing. Um, or saying we're going to have a 1-1. So I don't know what Cardiff's thought as, as to why it is, but to me it's just she's still better not playing the number nine than whatever other option you have. Yeah, and I think she, I think the thing about Kristen Press that we've seen with the national team, and I was floored, I know I reacted audibly when Richard gave that little bit of fa- uh, knowledge that uh, she her, her, her game's ratio uh, for goals is now higher than Alex Morgan's because Alex Morgan, for a while, was close was getting close to a goal a game, right, um, in, with the national team. Right. But the thing about Kristen Press that even with the national team we've seen is when she drifts deeper from goal, she get uh, she allows her teammates to run the channels, do the do the types of things running off of her. Carly Lloyd popping forward into an advantageous almost number nine position at times in in the course of a match, uh, in the course of a move, I should say, uh, that um, make the players around her even at that uh, that elevated level better. So imagine what she could do for Chicago if you drop her back into the number 10 role. That having been said, they don't have any other reliable goal scorers. Um, and that's, yep. that's the dilemma. I mean, I think we, we see this dilemma all the time from uh, uh, Landon Donovan with Bruce Arena with the national team. Do you drop him deeper so he gets more touches on the ball and he can dictate play? Wayne Rooney when Sir Alex eventually just kind of kept dropping him deeper and deeper and deeper. To the point by, that by the time Von Hall was done with him, he was basically a number eight. Um, you always want your best player and most creative player to get as many touches as possible. Um, so I guess that's the, uh, that, that, that's the difference. And that's also the difference between Kristen Press and Alex Morgan. And I think we should probably say something nice about Alex Morgan on the show because it seems like we've beaten up on her in comparison to Amy Rodriguez and Kristen Press. So I'll let one of you guys uh, say something nice about Alex That's Morgan. what we do because we demand perfection from that, from the baby horse. Well, I mean, you're, you're right. Any conversation about Alex Morgan ends up being distorted because we're always speaking to a almost a facade at this point that the conversation the fandoms that have created. Yeah, that no, that's totally it. And I, maybe maybe we judge her to a higher standard, and, and people like uh, the three of us are more critical of her because of that. I, I, I concede that, but, you know. You anyway. run off the bench when you're 18, and almost the, the decisive factor in a World Cup final. That's I mean, going to happen. Yeah, that's yeah. going to happen. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Neil from his career knows this. Sometimes you don't pick the conversation. You have the conversation picked for you, and you have to argue within it. And the conversation that we're entering into is a um, is a prosecution that is telling us Alex Morgan is the best player in the world, and that's yeah. clearly not the case. What, what Alex right. Morgan is 
is somebody who has the physical tenacity to not take advantage of, to destroy any player that is not up to that level. She also is one of the best, from what I've saw, seen here in Portland and with the national team, she's one of the most tenacious, tenacious pressers of the ball. Like, you do not want Alex Morgan bearing down on you. And she is something, she's developed into somebody that has the instincts to know when to use that speed to go along and retrieve the ball. And, you know, just like she did so many times for Abby Wambach, set up that person coming in as the second person into the box. Now, what she isn't is somebody that's going to outrun the French national team's defense. And... <laughs> When she doesn't have the technical skill of Kristen Press, that leaves her outmatched in those situations, which is why against the Germany, maybe you want to start Alex Morgan because she gives them an element that the German defense doesn't have. Against the France, right. maybe you want to start Kristen Press because not only is Kristen Press able to play in front of the line, but she's able to drop back and start help offset the numbers in midfield in a way that Alex Morgan, who has admitted that over the last three or four months, she needs to work on her technical quality. That's why she's going and doing the things she's doing now. They are so they are so interesting to compare with each other, and I know that people are tired of the comparison. Basically, everything that Alex Morgan does at an elite level is a weakness for Kristen Press, and everything Kristen Press does at an elite level is a weakness for Alex Morgan. It is so fascinating, and the U.S. is blessed to have both of them, and unfortunately, they can't seem to balance the two. But I want to get back to talking about Kristen Press because... When I watched the Chicago game this weekend, I was absolutely disagreeing with you guys. I was thinking that the one thing that this team has going for it is the fact that Kristen Press, if you put her up as a number nine, might score 12 or 14 goals this year. And if you're already a team that has sacrificed it, that is not scoring enough goals, why do you want to reduce your, your, your 24 goal level of last year to 20 or 18 and then dig yourself a bigger hole? I will say this. The diamond midfield itself behind um, the strikers allows the best pair of fullbacks in the league, Casey Short on the left, um, U.S. international people know right now, by now, and Aaron Gilliland, to get forward and establish that width. It is, it is the exact theory as to why you would want to play that diamond midfield. And what we saw from Casey Short this weekend is her potentially taking her game to another level where she can be dangerous, cutting in and offsetting the numbers not only in the flank but the middle of the field. And if that happens, that adds a dimension to Chicago's game that they didn't have last year, and that makes up some of the goals. Secondly, although she didn't score this weekend, her team didn't score this weekend, we did see Kristen Press able to use that space in front of the defense to get on the ball, run with the ball, and create the shots, kind of just the same way we talked about Rose Lavelle creating that one shot against Kansas City, except for Kristen Press did it like three or four times. Right. So I'm now more convinced that... It's possible that Kristen Press, the player who last year, when you count in the Olympics, maybe scored at a rate of 15 goals per 20 games with maybe three or four assists. I can't remember off the top of my head. Maybe you're making her into a 12 and 10 player. And that is where maybe Chicago has the potential. But I am, um, I'm completely fascinated by that. I don't know if there's a right answer. I think it's going to come down to uh, how. Uh, Jen Hoy and Stephanie McCaffrey, who are the forwards starting it in front of her play, I'm skeptical because those two have never been major goal scorers. And I'm also skeptical of, of kind of wasting Vanessa DiBernardo's playmaking at the number eight position. But I think tactically there are ways to get her involved in the final third that uh, take advantage of her talent. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, after watching that game a couple times, I'm far more willing to give it a chance than I was uh, before kickoff in Houston. Neil and I are going to get killed if, if we, uh, here in the state of Florida, if we don't talk about the Orlando Pride a little bit. So uh, let me ask you this question, and then we'll, we'll transition to talking a little bit about Lifetime and, and Go90. Uh, so the Pride 
collapsed at the end of last season. Defense is remade. You've got Steph Cately coming back from Australia, coming back from injury. Uh, Ali Krieger has come in. Uh, Kennedy has come in. Uh, yet the first weekend uh, of the season against Portland, they got ripped apart. Uh, what, what's your thought about that back four and Ashlyn Harris and how they can coalesce as the season moves on? I think Portland's a tough place to play, man. I mean, well, they opened the season last year with an incredibly good result against Portland last year, but it, I think that was an example of the Portland attack not really being at, you know, clicking on all cylinders like we talked about them before. And this year's Portland team is going to be much better than last year's Portland team going forward. And I think we saw that. And of course, Orlando at the other end of the field didn't have Alex Morgan, didn't have Marta. When you have somebody like Jasmine Spencer, the person on the end of the opportunities that you would rather have, Alex Morgan or Marta on the end of, yeah, it's it's going to look different, right? But in that respect, that's that's a reason to be positive because Jasmine Spencer did get into some dangerous areas quite often, and once the talent is uh, upgraded around her, which will start this weekend, I think that you'll have a lot of reason to be optimistic with Orlando. At the same time, you're right. Until it's proven on the field, you can't just take it for granted that this is going to come together. And I think some of the optimism that we saw online projecting Orlando to be a playoff team based purely on the acquisition of Marta, I don't think it acknowledged this incredibly high level of talent in this league. And I think, you know, until Tom comes up with an answer in midfield, because when you look at the central midfield talent on Orlando, it is subpar compared to Portland, North Carolina, Chicago. I mean, Chicago, we just talked about them having Vanessa DiBernardo and Kristen Press in midfield now, and we did not even mention Danielle Colaprico, who at least has gotten a call-in for a look with the national team camp. That's the level that Orlando needs to get to, in addition to having a, a, a defense that needs to come together and a tech that, while talented, it's still not as talented as North Carolina, or I wouldn't say as talented, but it's entirely possible that they're not going to be able to produce to the level of North Carolina, who has two MVP candidates in their attack, or the Portland Thorns, who has Tobin Heath, as well as one of the greatest players in soccer history, as their number nine. So that is the standard. And if Orlando has a major weakness in the middle of the field, that is... That could be the difference between a fourth and a sixth place finish. There, there is an, there's an assumption, and I know uh, Neil is hearing this as well from people around uh, in our neck of the woods, uh, that Alex Morgan's going to come back from Leon a more seasoned and complete player, a player that's able potentially to drift into midfield and link up and do the things that she hasn't been able to do. Uh, and she didn't need to do in Portland, quite frankly, with some of the players that were around her there, but that she would need to do here with this midfield. Uh, do you think that that's overly optimistic? I mean, it is only a four-month stint at Leon, but it is uh, a highly competitive situation for her. Yeah, it's a four-month stint with two um, prominent breaks in it. Um, yeah. You know, I think we're also forgetting that Alex Morgan isn't a young player at this point. Right. She, she has, you know, at this point in her career, she's probably at her prime, but she's probably past her physical prime. You know, we hit our phys- athletes said it hit their physical prime at 23, 24 years old, and the next three or four years, they can rely on their experience to really leverage that. But at this point, she's going to be losing steps as much as she's gaining tricks. Now, if she is able to come back even 10% better in those areas that you just identified, Kartik, Kristen Edmonds and Marta are two of the best talents to take advantage of that. I mean, I think it'd be a little bit hopeful for Edmonds to produce the same year she had last year. She was on my old league team last year. She's never been close to that level before. But at least she has the potential, right? Um, Now, if 
Alex Morgan, instead of just trying to beat other teams for speed, is able to check back, hit a ball to Edmonds, peel off, and as that ball goes to Marta, create a one-on-one matchup with like the left center back for the other team, then all of a sudden you've got something, right? You've got something that Orlando didn't have at all last year. But to be frank, there is a reason why Alex Morgan's goal-scoring rate is not very good in the end. NWSL, at least by elite player standards. It's kind of an average forwards goal scoring rate in the NWSL. You guys saw it last year. A lot of danger, not I think she ended with what, four goals last year? Yeah. A lot, a lot of danger, not much production, which is what she was for uh, two of her three years in Portland. And unless something changes in her game to where her prime asset is her foot speed, that she's not going to be able to reach the same level that you know, we talked about it with Kristen Preston and Amy Rodriguez. They are just better matchups for this league than Alex Morgan is. Oh, yeah, I don't think there's yeah, any... I, there's, I think... Okay, go ahead. Uh, yeah, no, I was just going to say, I don't think, uh, and I've had this conversation before, I don't think there's any comparison between Alex Morgan and, and A-Rod in this league. I mean, I just don't even think the argument is worth having. It's just people who watch the national team and don't watch the NWSL push back on my argument that Amy Rodriguez is a much better club player. But go on. Sorry, Neil. I just wanted to interject that. No, I was just going to say, I, I, building on Richard's point a little bit, I mean, Tom, Tom drafted to address the problems. And, and those, those things occurring in a world where Morgan either does get better or doesn't get better, it doesn't matter necessarily, I mean, the two players that they drafted will address some of the shortfalls in the team. I don't know how much the young woman from Penn State uh, will will play. Um, I'd play her a lot. Um, that's, that's what I would do, but, you know, I'm a little more in-tuned, in or at least historically have been in a little more in-tuned just because of what I've done with, with the college game that I have with this league. But I know if you have the captain of the USU-20s, and then a fixture on the U23 teams, and you draft her, and she can play center back or play as a number six, and you're Orlando, those are probably boxes that Tom Sermani thinks she can check. So, you know, this, this is probably uh, a thing that he sees as, as, you know, you don't ever see anything as a rebuild when you're a professional. You're going to try to make the playoffs. And Tom Sermani's a winner. But Dave... They've addressed those things in the draft. They'll continue to do that, I would imagine. And they brought in Marta to sell tickets. Yeah, I mean... That's my blood assessment. <laughs> I think also, quite honestly, last year, Tom took some reasonable gambles on some players that when they showed up, they just weren't the players they used to be. Sarah Hagan and Becky Edwards and Tony Presley and some other players, basically, right. are the, the ones I'm thinking. Fair. And yeah. about halfway through the year, those, those players were done. They, they, they weren't contributing it. They couldn't contribute anything. And because it was an expansion team that had traded away so many of its assets before Tommy arrived, they had no backup plan. So I think that it is right to think that, you know, some of these issues are being addressed, right? And um, just having somebody like Steph Cadley for the whole year and, and um, upgrading with, with Ali Krieger on the other side, that's, those, are, those are significant things. And we talked about Martin and the potential combinations. Um, but that's not to say that this team still doesn't have significant holes. And I would say that if Orlando goes from ninth place to fifth or sixth place this year, people should view that as significant progress. Because like we've talked about all throughout this podcast so far, the bar in the NWSL is incredibly high. Not only the talent factor, the style factor, the tactics factor, but just the culture factor too. 
Well, let me ask you, Richard, um, about Sarah Hagen specifically, because it's been the topic of a lot of conversation in the last week among people I talked to. Uh, with Alex Morgan gone until uh, June at the earliest, and you've got Martha just coming in now, was it wise for Tom and Orlando to let her go at this point? Uh, could, could you have kept her through June? Well, let's let's lay some assumptions down here that Tom didn't release one of the players that he thought was one of his 20 best. Um, the argument that we should be saying here is, is it worth it for Orlando to release their 20th best player to keep their 21st or 22nd or 23rd, however he saw Hagen, because of a positional need in the short term? Now, I think when you yeah. phrase it like that, it doesn't sound like a good choice, right? Because Orlando already isn't a team, like we just talked about, that has so much roster depth that they can afford to be given away players who might be part of their future for short-term play in the present. I think, secondly, Marta's not a long way off into the future. She, she's here, right? So yeah. that's going to be a significant upgrade. If you have to go one game without it and release Sarah Hagen because of it, then fine. I think third of all, too, are we really, really convinced that Sarah Hagen would be doing a better job than Jasmine Spencer is doing? They're obviously drastically, drastically different players. But Sarah Hagen, as productive as she was in Germany, and as much promise as she had coming out of the, uh, college, has never produced in the NWSL for multiple teams. So while she may produce in the future and she may click the same way she clicked in Germany um, going forward, I don't think we can really criticize Tom for evaluating her as an expendable part. Yeah, I, I think it was just surprising to a lot of people because uh, there was a, a clear correlation with her being released and Martha being signed. And the thought was, uh, and again, you know, it, it's you've had a team for one year, you fall in love with certain players, and she played very well at the front end of last season, uh, actually, after coming over. Um, she, um, the, the, there was just the assumption that she was going to lead the line until Alex Morgan came back. So I think that caught a lot of people off guard, but I, I completely agree with your premise. Uh, they traded away so yeah. many potential parts in order to get Alex Morgan, even before the team kicked the ball, and, and those parts went to Portland. And, and so you have to... Uh, you have to really invest in youth now, and you have to invest in that midfield as well. And uh, you're right, Sarah Hagen was going to be expendable in two months, so why not um, Why not make that move now? Yeah. Uh, we're talking about teams here where they have talent levels where Portland can lose the players that they traded to Orlando and still be a shield winner. FC Kansas City <laughs> can, lose, can lose Amy Rodriguez and um, Lauren Holiday last year, and they're still a middle-of-the-pack team. You have Seattle that lost Kilo Winters and Kim Little, and people are predicting them to be a middle-of-the-pack team this year. That's the talent level we have in this league. Yeah, and Kansas City is Kansas City has the best defender in the world on their team, and right. they're only a middle-of-the-pack team. Well, and they've lost yeah. Heather O'Reilly now, too, so they've, they've yeah. I mean, if, you, more if you throw Des Scott in as their number six when she's healthy, they have the best back six in the league, and we're still, I probably have to this weekend, saying they're going to be the fifth or sixth best team in the league now. Right. Of the now, Orlando, they're just not at that level as far as squad depth. 
If they want to be a consistent winner in this league, and a consistent competitor, we'll say, because as we're discovering when we go through these teams, there are four or five teams in this league that are really doing everything right, and they're competing with each other at an elite level. Orlando's not there yet. So these short-term sacrifices that somebody might imply by, you know, Karthik is saying, just based on your expectations, if you step back and look at it, Orlando still needs to think long-term. Orlando needs to think, okay, we took a step forward this year. Now, how do we fill out the midfield? And then how do we fill out um, more depth next year for when people start going on international duty more often? And at that point, we might be a viable fourth-place contender. Because right now, I I think Orlando's going to need some breaks to make the playoffs this year. Yeah, no. Um, Let's let's transition to lifetime real quick, because I think... We might even let Richard off the hook because we've we've talked a yeah, lot. Yeah, uh, sorry, Richard. It's, well, let, it's so rare that Neil and I get to talk at WSL with someone. Uh, <laughs> we're always talking, and you know, we get bored by talking about men's soccer. So um, yeah, I think is, I indulge you a little too much. This is such a great show. Yeah. I mean, I'm so excited about this show. But but um, lifetime. Um, kind of general thoughts on the first week, and and you know, just what you thought of the deal. What what your your I don't want to talk about your expectations because that seems kind of silly. Like, what's your what's your hope though um, with with the way that that the production goes and with the matches that they choose and and so on. Well, I guess my hope is that we would consistently see what we did this weekend, which to me was a quality of product was that is as good, if if not even a little better than we're used to seeing. But you would expect the first show in a venue like Portland where they have so much time to prepare for it and they have so many things to talk about, you'd expect that to be one of their best shows, right? But what is the show going to be like when they have to go to Kansas City or Boston? Like, what is, What's the product going to be like there when you don't have the camera angles and you don't have the places to set up a good halftime show or a pregame show or uh, there isn't the atmosphere uh, that require you know, when you have an atmosphere like Portland, you can just let the camera roll, basically, and just follow the ball. You don't need to do anything. Well, what's it going to be like when you go to Washington and there are only 2,300 people there? But I think, they, I think they set the bar high. I don't think any of us really could have asked for that much more. I'd be interested to hear your guys' thoughts, particularly Kartik's, because, you know, Kartik's so much of what you do now is about analyzing this stuff. But, I, I mean, I would say that my main thing with the lifetime broadcast alone is just establishing a pattern of behavior for people, whether it's setting their DVRs or actually going to that consistent time slot, which credit to them, they have nailed down one time slot. It's a competitive time slot, but it's a time slot. Just doing what they can to establish that behavior because I mean, we know as much as anything and just the way that we watch soccer, whether it's getting up early in the morning on the weekends because we just watch the Premier League no matter what or Sunday night, when Sunday night comes along, we know there's going to be one or two MLS games except for this Sunday, but you get into those patterns. If they can establish a pattern of behavior, then that would already be a step forward. In addition to just having you know, a financial partner in the league, which for a fifth-year league like this is just it's kind of subtly incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. Karnik, I, I want to redirect this to you and kind of just step away and play host almost here. But what, I mean, your impressions of, of Dalen Cuff, um, kind of what, uh, you know, what, what did you observe and, you know, what are you hoping for moving forward? Well, shameless plug here. I wrote, wrote a, uh, well, kind of a long, uh, piece on uh, World Soccer Talk, analyzing both Go90 and Lifetime. We'll get to Go90 in a minute. 
with Lifetime, I thought Dalen Cuff was very good. Again, it might have been the atmosphere of, of Portland and the first game and having, uh, having Jen Hildreth and Allie Wagner involved in the pregame show, which uh, I didn't expect. I thought we were just going we might see them for a minute like we do on the NBC uh, Premier League pregame shows when they go to Arlo White for like two minutes and the, uh, the rest is, is studio chatter uh, and features. Uh, but they, they involved them in the pregame show. Uh, Julie Foudy uh, being there was a really nice surprise. Um, I, and I know there are some plans for some other uh, uh, big-time uh, former women's players who are in broadcasting now, Kate McGrath and others, to, to, to play that role that Julie Foudy played in Portland this weekend at times this season. So uh, I, I really liked the graphics. I liked... The subtlety of the intros and the outros, it wasn't loud and abrasive and in-your-face like Fox. I thought it was great for Ali Wagner, once again, to get a national stage uh, calling yeah. and talking about football, or soccer, football, whatever you want to call it, instead of that show she was on on Fox last year, which uh, that uh, during the Copa America, which was just a train wreck. And Jen Hildreth is always as professional. She's been doing this for a decade now. No one better in the business. So I, I was real happy with the Lifetime broadcast. Now on Go90, I know Richard and I, I think, disagree a little bit on this. Um, Richard, I have to say I disagree with you. I, um, I miss the, the, the native announcers, the, the, the uh, homerism. I, I do like the fact that they have, <laughs> kind of, um, they have kind of universalized the way games are broadcast and the types of streams. I wasn't terribly happy with the camera work. I talked about that in my World Soccer Talk piece. But I was really kind of missing uh, the native announcers. I thought that that was, uh, particularly in a league where you don't have uh, that, much, that, that much of an identity around most of these clubs, I liked having uh, Homer announcers. Now, long-term, you don't want to have that. You want to have this kind of professional production without home announcers like you see on the international feed for the Premier League or USL's doing now. But as you're tr trying to establish the brands for teams, particularly teams that are struggling like Boston and Sky Blue and, uh, and wh whoever else, you um, uh, and Chicago, etc., I, I think it's, it's pretty useful to have that, um, um, that, th those, those homer announcers. So what are your thoughts on that? No, I, you know, I think it's a, it's kind of a case by case thing. Um, you know, when the homer announcers are good and providing energy, like in Portland and Seattle and Houston, to varying degrees they had energy, but I think there was a distinct character to those broadcasts that I did enjoy. Um, but there were other kind of hometown broadcasts that I just thought were kind of stuck in a time warp. Um, the, the legacy teams, Washington, Sky Blue, Boston, Western New York, some of those broadcasts were good. I'm just lumping them together so I don't single anybody out. Sometimes you had announcing teams that were more familiar with the past, even going back to WPS of these teams, and would constantly be referencing those points over and over and over again that you yeah. were just thinking to yourself, are you even prepared to talk about this league at all, or are you just talking about five, ten years ago when it's not even possible Richard, that was part of my critique, though, was that I felt like the announcers that we saw on Saturday and Sunday on Go90 weren't necessarily steeped in the history and, um, and kind of perspective of the women's game that I was expecting or that I'm familiar with. So maybe it's just, maybe I'm seeing, you're, you're, I'm, I'm seeing the same well, thing you are, but I, I kind of embrace the talk about WPS yeah. and legacy. I, I think there's I think there's a middle ground, right? Like, if you're, um, 
I'm just going to pick, I'm going to pick out Sky Blue because I know they weren't bad this year, last year in this. In fact, they did some things to try to vary their broadcast. But I'm going to use them as an example because I don't want to just pick out one of the bad ones without picking out all of them. So know that Sky Blue isn't, isn't a bad one. I'm just going to use them as the proper noun here. But when you have some a, a broadcast team that isn't referring to the history of both teams or the league, but they're just referring to that time that Christy Rampone was pregnant and won a title in WPS, or that time that uh, Scott Blue did X, Y, and Z six years ago. And they're not providing the same perspective on the other team, the league as a whole, That's or true. just the, rele- the historical relevance of what's going on in a broader term beyond that market. That's bad. Because it's, yeah. not, only, it's not only that you're, you're being a homer, you're underserving the people that need to be brought into this culture. So I think that's Kartik where you and I probably have a middle ground. When you do it well, yes, it's it's a positive. Obviously, uh, obviously like you want announcers that can, you know, you want get yourself a man that can do both, right? But when you're doing it in a bad way, like that is just bad. For th- for those that don't know, Richard and I have been on pod- various podcasts together for about eight years now, and he knows how to win me over, and I think he just won me. I'm dropping my side no, of the I, argument. Uh, that's the middle say, ground. I think that was, that was well sold, and, and I think even in our little geographical enclave, the context of that is probably pretty accurate. I mean, Orlando last year did that properly, whether it was Christian Brewery or the other guy. Uh, whose name is escaping me. And then you had Becky Burley, um, who has relatively strong credentials and can teach the game. That kind of was, that was a draw. I mean, it was a, it was a reason to, to tune in, was to listen to local announcers. Sometimes it is a setback. It's kind of why, on a, it's, I guess tangentially, it's why I liked the Dalen Tough move so much, just because it's somebody that, has worked with Kara Lawson and has worked with Doris Burke. So he was a guy that, in addition to being extraordinarily highly, ed- highly educated um, and a really big fan of the sport, had also worked with strong personalities that are also female in sport before. And I think that that is something that will serve him well when he's next to a Jen Hildreth or when he's working with an Allie Wagner and saying, wow, these are people that have tremendous insights into this game, and I'm just kind of here to, you know, ask them questions and drive the narrative forward uh, and redirect if I need to or just absorb. And I thought that was really smart, and it's what we saw um, Saturday, I thought, which was a relief. Yeah, so... Yeah, I, oh, go ahead. I, I, I agree with you there. I think that... We almost have to separate the lifetime production from the Go90 production, not only in its quality, but its its expectations. So those people in Fort Lauderdale that are broadcasting on Go90, you know, we had one team that had to do three games this weekend, whereas the lifetime crew has a whole, whole week to prepare, and they're flown out two days ahead of time, and they're meeting together, and... Um, yes. you know, in fairness, I think Matt Peterson, who did three of the Go90 games, does, did a very very good job but at the same time he's he's flying in from houston the day of probably and getting back to houston as soon as possible uh, you know it's, it's a totally different standard and, and also i uh, think uh, in, in jen hildreth you have somebody who is just she's the the, the voice of women's soccer now she's become incredibly seasoned at this calling calling the professional women's game the club game um so it's you also have that advantage and go 90 doesn't have her yeah so 
and, and then of course there were technical problems on Sunday with Go 90 that we didn't experience with lifetime, with lifetime. So it's it's almost two different worlds. Just as you know, just as we wouldn't compare Fox or ESPN's productions to what we see on MLS Live, we probably shouldn't compare um, Lifetime to Go 90. And even with I was going to say. No, let's let's not be too over. No, no, for for Go Ninety, just so for for people who know this, <laughs> don't know this, Go Ninety is being done by the same production company that does USL production. So if you want a point of reference to compare, uh, do that. Compare it to USL production. I did not know that. Yes, it's and they're both being done out of our neck of the woods, Neil. Believe it or not, maybe you and I should stop in there and do a pod with those guys sometime. <laughs> yeah. If you- It'd be interesting to hear like what the kind of day is on a game day there. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, USL has been very public about going to Fort Lauderdale and hiring this production company and setting up shop there, whereas NWSL has not talked about it as much. So I don't think people quite realize that it's kind of co-located in the same place. The difference being that USL has uh, paid to relocate people to Fort Lauderdale permanently, whereas uh, NWSL is flying people in just for the games. Gotcha. Well, Richard, thank you. I mean, we gotta we gotta wrap this up because we have to upload this to iTunes. If we've gone well over an hour, yeah, we're gonna bust people's storage space. With this us. was no. I mean, this this was this was tremendous. I'm really excited about this. Um, but yeah, I mean, thanks a lot. Uh, I'm not gonna ask you for anything cheesy in terms of uh, NWFL predictions, but. But certainly, yeah. thanks for your... as I said before, I'm only giving those to Sony Pacey for him. Uh, yeah, no, thank you, thank you so much for your time. Um, yeah, uh, no, we really, honestly, we really anytime, anytime to talk about the NWSL because I mean, I think for all of us um, that are invested in the league at this point, it, it is a long term thing, and just talking about it with people, especially in places where you know you, you guys probably have people that are far more interested in the men's game listening to this podcast than the women's. If we can just get one or two of those people to start tuning in the games, just selfishly, it's it's going to put them on a paycheck eventually. So that's what I'm really here for. I know those MLS Absolutely. fans are going to complain, uh, Neil. Uh, we should prepare Richard for this, saying, you're always talking about the women's game on this podcast. We want some MLS coverage next week, guys. We promise. Uh, the Richard, the women's game is good. That's why. This league is really good. R- R- Richard, uh, where can people find you on social media and, of course, 442? Yeah, Richard Farley on Twitter, at Richard Farley, and 442.com slash US. We've had that site going, a US-specific site, for a year now. We, um, to, to put it bluntly, between myself and then my boss, Jeff Kasuf, you have two people there that have been covering the professional women's league. Yeah. First year of women's pro soccer, so... Um, we're, we're very proud of that, but then we also have Paul Tenorio there, who I'm sure a lot of your a lot of your listeners are familiar with Paul from his excellent coverage of Orlando before he moved uh, north to Chicago. Um, I mean, I I don't think I'm exaggerating when I'm saying when you're, you're talking about national team coverage, MLS and NWSL, we we do as much justice to those leagues as any other outlet out there. No, there it's tremendous. Um, everybody that that's not there on a on a daily basis checking out what they have to offer uh is quite honestly doing themselves a disservice and um hiring paul tenorio was probably uh i that that was a home run and i i think we use the home run hire uh analogy about as freely and too often as we use the word great but between the three people uh that that were just mentioned um you have some tremendous soccer voices um and Check it out. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, guys. Great, thanks. 
The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love. Like taking those perfect new year, new you portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. It's the best way to stay connected to everyone you'll heart most in 2019. So get ready to fall in love with iPhone XR on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. Call 1-800-T-Mobile to learn more or visit a store today.